today, uh, we're going to tackle the last part of Nehemiah. I, I know it may seem like last week, last week, even to me, seemed like a kind of like a wrap up sermon of, of the book of Nehemiah, where you, where you get this big pattern of God, of God pouring out his grace and mercy. And then, and then the people turning towards back towards him. It's a great pattern. We see it over and over in scripture. We see it in our lives today. There's a, I want to talk about a little twist at the end that also happens in our lives. Um, and so we're going to look at Nehemiah chapter 13. So why don't you stand to your feet in honor of reading the word. We're going to get started. You can find it on the screen or you can see it uh, in the Bible app. You can find it in the Hope Community Church app on your phone as well. Or if you brought that analog Bible, you can turn to Nehemiah in that. So say amen if you're ready. All right, Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 1, we'll start there. On that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. And in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Verse 4. Now before this... Eliashib, the priest who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priest. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem. And then I discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry. And I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders and they cleansed the chambers and brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them. So that the Levites and the singers who did the work had each fled to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, why has the house of God been forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed his treasurers over the storehouses. Shelemiah, the priest, Zodok, the scribe, and Pediah of the Levites as their assistant, Hanan, the son of Zachar, son of uh, Mataniah, for they were considered reliable and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. In verse 14, he says this, remember me, oh my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I've done for the house of my God and for his service. Father, we thank you today. Lord, we know if we look into your word, it has the power to change us. So we pray that that would happen this morning. Lord, we came on purpose. We came on purpose to be in fellowship with one another and in your presence. Now, as we look into your perfect word for us, we pray that it would renew our minds. Change us, Lord. Change the way we think. So in turn, when we leave this place, we do something different. We'd be more like Christ. And it's in that name we pray. And everyone said... Amen. You may be seated. 
I told you there was a twist at the end of the book of Nehemiah. Actually, it seems like to me uh, that if I was writing it as a historical document to cover uh, the accomplishments that I had made, I would probably end before chapter 13. Just being honest, I would probably end before we get to chapter 13 because chapter 13 is a difficult chapter. There's a consecration in, in the chapters before. There's a dedication. There's, there's all these great things happening. Uh, Nehemiah setting reforms in place. And as we talked about last week, there's this returning to the Lord. We open up chapter 13 Verses one through three are kind of are strange a little bit. It, it talks about reading in the book of Moses to the people. And then, and then when you get to verse four, and it's very specific, by the way, verse one through three of Nehemiah 13 is very specific about not letting Ammonites and Moabites into the house of the Lord, into the temple for a very specific reason. In the Exodus story, the, the, those, those people rejected the Israelites as they were coming through and actually plotted against them and, and God judged them for it. So now this very specific passage of the law is, is referenced in Nehemiah 13, one through three. When you get to verse four of chapter 13, it's like a flashback. Now before this, this is what happened. So all of a sudden we start to find out that Nehemiah had left after about being the governor about 12 years in Jerusalem. So, so think about this. Nehemiah arrives. It's over an 800 mile. It's about a three month trip. He leaves the citadel of Susa and he goes back. He goes to Jerusalem. Remember that was all the way back at the, uh, four weeks ago, five weeks ago when we first started this, he finds out he, 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 before he even goes into Jerusalem, he has, he has some resistance from a guy named Tobiah and, and uh, um, Sanballat, he has resistance from these two guys immediately. Then he goes into the city for three days and three nights. He doesn't tell anybody what he's going to do. And, and he assesses the wall. Then he gathers the people together and says, hey, we're going to build this thing. He receives the same resistance at that time from Tobiah and Sanballat. And another Arab comes into the picture. But the, there, there's great resistance against this movement. And yet in the midst of all that, under Nehemiah's leadership, the wall is built in 52 days. It's miraculous. We talked about it last week. It was the grace and mercy of God being poured out on a people to do an, a miraculous thing. In response to that, the people turn towards the Lord. Now think about this period of time. Now, now Nehemiah had been the governor now for 12 years. 12 years. 12 years he had ensured that these reforms stayed in place. For 12 years there was a turning towards God. For 12 years uh, Jerusalem was being led well. For 12 years, 12 years they had set these things in place. Now at that, in verse 4 it says that he goes back to Artaxerxes in Babylon. He returns back to his post. Now there's some there's some questioning about how long he stayed in Babylon with the king. Nobody's 100% sure how long he stayed there, but we don't think it was a long, long, long. We don't think it was 12 years. For whatever reason, Nehemiah goes to the king again and says, hey, can I go back to Jerusalem? 
So now he's on his second trip back to Jerusalem. Remember, he had been governor. He had been ruling in Jerusalem for 12 years. All these, the wall was built. The reforms were in place. People turned back to God. Worship was happening the way it should. Now he comes back and he finds out. Now listen to this. As soon as he comes back, he finds out, remember the name Tobiah? Remember the guy, the Ammonite, Tobiah, who had resisted him all the way through, who had been, who had been a, just a pain and you know where. He had been, it was awful the resistance that this man had given. Nehemiah comes back into Jerusalem the second time. He had made another long journey, he comes back into Jerusalem and he finds out that Tobiah had been allowed to set up a house inside the temple in one of the chambers. He had been allowed to, to move his stuff in there. Now, does verse one through three make sense? Verse one through three, Nehemiah on purpose writes, hey, this was what God told us. Remember, remember how they were supposed to separate themselves because they were enemies of Israel. Remember that? Now the irony is an Ammonite has set up a set up living quarters in a chamber in God's temple, in, in the building representing God's presence, where God's presence was to dwell. It's almost unbelievable that it happened. It's almost unbelievable that it happened. Nehemiah flips his lid. That's a polite way of putting it. It says he got angry and he went in and threw out all of his furniture. Just threw it out. Of, just threw it all out. And uh, he has to get everything in place again. Now this is, this is sometimes difficult for us to understand why when we look at Israel, we go, why would they do something dumb like that? Why, how after 12 years could, could that type of, after all the blessing of God, after he protected him, after he built the wall, after he, after he let him experience a miracle, after, after all the reform, after, after seeing how good it was to live the way God intended them to live, how in the world could get, could they go back to that? But here's the, here's the truth of the matter. Every single one of us intimately know how it happens. We know how it happens. I probably don't need to explain it to you because compromise happens pretty quickly, doesn't it? Compromise isn't a thing that you that that takes 10, 15 years to take place. Compromise just happens kind of like, oh, there it was. There, there it is. Oh, it just happened. I just compromised just a little. I compromised just a little. And before you know it, we're fully compromised. Before you know it, it's... It's happened. It happened so fast. Verse six, while this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king and after some time I asked to leave the king and come and came to Jerusalem. So he said, in the period of time I was gone, it wasn't that long. How did all this fall apart? Here's what I figured out in my life. It takes a lot longer to set it up than it does to tear it down. It takes a lot longer to set the thing up than it does to tear it down. Do you know it takes, you know how long it takes to make a habit? You're talking, I know some people say 30 days. I don't know. It feels like it takes five years. You know, make a really good habit. 
habit of reading your Bible every night, a habit of praying with your spouse, a habit of, a habit of, of getting up early in the morning, maybe an exercising a habit because there's always something trying to get you to compromise. There's always something trying to get you to compromise. Well, I'm not getting enough sleep now. Well, you know, there's this other thing that was more important. And, And so we're, it feels like to me that we're always wrestling with this thing. We're always wrestling this thing, but then boom, one little second, it can all go away. One little thing can cause it all to go away. It takes way longer to set up than to tear it all down. There's an example of this uh, in the Exodus story. So God has done these miraculous things for the Israelites. Uh, Through a series of plagues, you see them delivered from Egyptian rule, from slavery in Egypt. A whole nation of people were in slavery in Egypt, and God sent Moses and he delivers them. It's absolutely miraculous. After they leave, they, they just get up, walk out of Egypt. After they leave, they're caught between the Red Sea and the Egyptian army. And, and in a miraculous, you can read it in the book of Exodus, and, the, and a miraculous thing happens. God, God, through Moses, splits the sea in half. They walk through the sea on dry land. I mean, it's... You, you know, the Charlton Heston thing, you know, you've seen the movie. It's, it's a miraculous thing. But then, not too long after that, God calls Moses up on a mountain to give him how to live. This is what I want your people to, this is what I want the people to do. This is, this is the rules now. This is the boundaries. This is what, how they're going to live. This is how we're going to do it. He calls him up. In Exodus, it says Moses was on the mountain with God 40 days and 40 nights. Let's be honest, it's, it's like a, a month and 10 days, 40 days and 40 nights, a month and 10 days. You know what happens in less than a month and 10 days? Exodus chapter three, 32, verse one. Listen to this. When the people saw that Moses was so long and coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, come make us gods who will go before us. Did you just read what I read? Come make us gods who will go up before us. Now Moses, Moses hadn't been gone more than a month and a half. It says his whole time on the mountain was 40 days and 40 nights. So in a month, and not even a month and a half, in less than a month and a half, he hasn't come down yet. They said, where, where is he? Can't wait on him anymore. After all that God had done for them, getting them out of Egypt, walking through the Red Sea, miracle after miracle after miracle, God was building an amazing reputation with these people. I'm your deliverer. I'm your provider. I'm I'm all these things. And yet Moses goes away. He hasn't even been gone a month and a half yet. They said, come make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses. By the way, this fellow Moses who had part of the Red Sea, who had walked you out of Egypt, all those things. As for this fellow Moses, who brought us up out of Egypt, yeah, we'll recognize that. He's he's the one that did that. We don't know what has happened to him. We're not going to wait any longer. So they don't cry out to God about it. They asked for an idol. Watch what they do. Aaron answered them, okay, then take off your gold earrings and your that your wives and your sons and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron and he took, a, 
took what they handed him and made it into an idol and cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then he said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. In less than a month and a half, after being miraculously delivered from Egypt, miraculously delivered from the Egyptian army, walked dry-footed through the Red Sea, after all of that, in a moment, they created idols. In a moment, they give credit to something that's not even alive. Aaron ends up making an excuse for it after it gets caught by Moses. They say, what happened? Well, this thing just popped out. We just read right there. He fashioned it with a tool. See how fast this happens? See how fast when we, when we, when we want something our way, when we want it to go our way, we, we say, well, we're waiting on God, we're waiting on God, we're waiting on God, we're waiting on God, but it's not convenient for me anymore, so I'm going to make up my own thing. Now, the irony about the Nehemiah story is this. That the temple is represented was the presence of God. And we find out in Nehemiah 13 that the very place where the Ammonite, Tobiah, took up residence in, had his furniture in, was the place that the worship of the people was being stored up in. Think about this. It was the tithes and offerings that were supposed to go to the Levites and the priests. It, it, was, it was in the singers. It was like the storehouse for the gifts that people had brought as tithes to God. It was the storehouse for their worship, if you want to say that. You think, how in the world would this ever happen? See how quick, after 12 years of reforms, all of a sudden, somebody compromises a little bit, and next thing you know, and something has replaced the worship of the people. Hmm. Come on, church, you know how it works. You start, you're, you're being faithful, 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 and then a couple things happen. Come on, you know it. I know it. I know personally what it's like. You're being faithful, faithful, faithful. A couple things happen. And all you have to do is compromise a little bit, just a little bit, just a little bit, just a little bit here, just a little bit there, just a little bit here, just a little bit there, just a little bit there, a little bit more, a little bit more. And then all of a sudden, the place of worship that God held in your heart is all of a sudden filled up with something else. It's filled up with junk furniture. All of a sudden, the place, the storehouse where the people's offerings were being stored to give to the priests and, and the singers. The, the purpose that God had set it up for was now, was now corrupted and Ammonite was living in there. You say, how does that even happen? It happens one little compromise at a time. It happens quick. It happens faster than you realize. In the, in the Israelites case, it happened in less than a month and a half with, with Aaron. Moses is gone. We don't know what happened to him. Let's just make up something so we can, they're replacing the piece of, they're replacing God with something else they can, they can get, they think they can get something from. It's shocking. Nehemiah comes back and finds Tobiah. Could you imagine now listen, remember I told you it was, a, it was a twist? Can you imagine Nehemiah walking back into Jerusalem and somebody walking up to him and saying, hey, remember Tobiah? Remember that guy that gave you all that trouble? Can you, remember the guy that, I mean, they tried to kill you. Remember that? 
Remember how much grief Tobiah gave you through the whole thing. Remember him? Yeah, yeah, I've been trying to forget him. Yeah. Oh, well, guess what? He took up residence in the temple. He's living in one of the chambers there, meant for the grain offering. Yeah, man, he moved right in. The priest moved him in. Priest and him, you know, are buddy buddies. They're kind of related in a little bit. And, and, and he just moved him in. Can you imagine the blood draining right out of, Tuba, or right out of Nehemiah at that time? I know I'd, I'd be thinking after all this, how in the world can this happen? After all this, how can this be going on? Church, we need to make sure we're asking those questions after all that God has done. How could we let this happen? How can this happen in our prison? After all that God has done, we have to be careful. Compromise happens in a moment. Before you know it, something else has taken place of your worship. So thank God Nehemiah did something about it. I, um, by nature, I've taken a lot of personality tests and one of my giftings, uh, I call it a gift. One of my giftings is the ability to become angry. Nobody around me calls that a gift, but anyway, what happens here is there are moments where we should be angry, full on red faced fire breathing, angry. Nehemiah walks up into that temple and we see a scene just like we talked about a few weeks ago of Jesus walking in the temple, clearing it. Nehemiah once again walks in the temple and says, what do you think you're doing? You know, you know. Now verses one through four, one through five, now they make sense. Nehemiah, they, they read the law. Hey, are you kidding me? This is blatantly obvious. This shouldn't be taken. This type of sin should not be taking place here. So he doesn't get a committee together to find out if it's a sin. They should, they, they don't, well, what do you think about it? What do you think about it? You know, we can, we can vote on this and find out if it's really a bad deal or not. No, he walks straight into Tobias, got all his stuff thrown out. Nehemiah said, this will not stand here. Now, I need to make sure we understand something. <laughs> Don't you dare go over to your neighbor's house and start throwing all their furniture out. Like, you, you all ain't worshiping God. I'm going to throw it all out. No, that's not how you should apply this scripture in your life. Where we should be angry now in the New Testament is with this person right here. Not you angry with me, but we should be, we should be sick to our stomach about our own sin. Now, now listen, I'm not, I'm not talking about, remember the context of what's happening. I'm not talking about the sin you got forgiveness for yesterday or the, or the sin, the, the sin that you got forgiveness for 10 years ago and you put out and you killed that sin and you're not committing it anymore. I'm talking about the stuff that you let replace your worship. I'm talking about the stuff that we let come in, the little compromises over and over and over again. And before you know it, something else is where the worship should be. Something else is where, is where the presence of God should be. Something else is where the offering should be. Like we let it happen. We let it creep in. We let it, we let it come in and we let it set up residence and stay there. And God's been trying to say to us, hey, that's not, that's not where that thing should be in your life. 
That thing shouldn't be living there. That thing, that thing that you've now replaced the presence of God with, that thing where you, you now replace worship with, that thing that's in your life, that should cause us to be angry. Angry with the sin that we let take over. Verse eight says, and I was very angry and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders and they cleansed the chambers and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. Proverbs teaches this principle in chapter eight, verse 13. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Hmm. Pride and arrogance in the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. You know where that starts? Right here. It starts with us. We have to be disgusted with the sin in our own lives first. The things that have replaced the worship of God in our lives, the little compromises that all of a sudden turned into something we didn't expect. Now here's the issue. It's much easier to throw somebody else's stuff out than it is our own. Oh, isn't it true? Isn't it true? I'm really good on Facebook about now. I don't post anything, but I'm sitting on the other side of Facebook going, oh, how dare them. It's one of those things easy for us to do. We have become amazing at looking through the wood in our own eye. The Bible will tell us. I'll read it to you. Jesus talked about it. We're really good at looking through the thing blocking us to see the little thing in somebody else's life. We're amazing at it. I can look past my own sin and I can pick every one out of yours. Even the little ones. He said, well, I can't believe they do something like that. Oh, I wouldn't, you know, I would never do that. I can't believe they, oh, did you hear? Oh, I can't believe they would do anything. Like, oh my goodness. Super easy, but Jesus didn't teach that. Jesus saw in Matthew chapter seven, verse three, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? He said, you're living in such a way that you don't even see the impediment in your own life. All you see is the little things everybody else does. You don't even see the the huge thing in your own life. He says, verse four, or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your own eye when there is a big log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye And then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. You know why there's so many people that get hurt in the church? Because we're not fit to do the surgery on somebody else. If we've let something replace our worship, how do we go in and clean somebody else's worship space out? Jesus saying, it's not that I don't want you to help somebody else, but you can't do eye surgery on somebody else until you can see clearly. Until you get 2020 vision on your own self, until, until I can deal with my sin, until I can say to myself, hey, this isn't right, and I, I've, I've compromised here, and it happened quickly, and, and I've got to do something about it, until I can get to that place, how in the world can I get some, can, can, I, can I do it in somebody else's life? Now, now let me say this. Jesus was not teaching an abolition on pointing out somebody else's sin. Don't, don't get that wrong. It's in the context of relationship with the focus on ourself. We're here to help each other. We're here, we're here to, we're here to talk to, we're here to, we're here to caution each other and to warn each other. We're not here to just sing kumaya and act like everything's fine. 
No, he, he says, if you're going to take the speck out of somebody else's eye, make sure your own eye is clear. First step, first prerequisite. If you're going, if you're going to help somebody else, make sure you're healthy enough to help. Because you know how people get hurt? People who are blind helping other people to see. That's how people get hurt all the time. So here we are. Here we are together. And the, and the principle here in Nehemiah is that we should be angry about our own sin enough to do something about it. It should cause us to be, to have action. James 4, 7. James writes says, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil. And he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Listen to this. These, this image he places here. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep and let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Nehemiah was furious and hurt over the sin in the place. And I'll be honest with you, there's times in my life where I just overlook it. I just overlook it and it doesn't, it doesn't hurt me like it hurts God. But James tells me, Chris, you should be, you should be mortified about the sin in your life. You should be mortified about the sin in my, I need to deal with it. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. So now, now here we are. In a short period of time, remember, it takes longer to build it than it does to tear it down. In a short period of time, Nehemiah has left, went back to King Artaxerxes. Then he asked the king, hey, can I return to Jerusalem? The king allows him. He takes that long journey. When he shows up, he finds Tobiah living in the temple. He finds them, he finds them intermarrying with, with pagan cultures, which is a whole other story we can get into another time. He finds them not obeying what God had set out for them. The, the, the boundaries and the, and the rules that God had set out for them to live as a, a holy people. They had just kind of thrown them to the side. Matter of fact, what happened, one of the things that happened is they were letting, they had a hard and fast rule about the Sabbath. That you should, that you should not work on the Sabbath day. And they were letting the foreign people come into the city and work all day on the Sabbath. Now, technically, was that right? Maybe. Maybe technically they weren't working, but they had allowed, they had allowed the breaking of the Sabbath as long as you weren't, you weren't a Jew. Nehemiah says, get it all out. Shut the gates. When the Sabbath started, he'd shut the gates. He wouldn't let anybody in. So the reform had started. Here we go. Here we are. God had poured out his grace and mercy, did a miraculous thing. They built the wall in 52 days. The thing, they had all these reforms. He governed them 12 years. He goes back in a, in a relatively short period of time. Boom, they had switched all the way back. And now Nehemiah is here. The twist at the end is that they had turned away again and now he's having to implement these things all over. He's like, you know what's right. Do what's right. So that's my word to us this morning. I think that's what God's saying to us this morning. And this is the critical part in our culture right now. 
I need you to hear me out. This is a critical part in our culture right now. The church has to be mindful, has to determine that we are going to do what's right, not just what people think is right. Yeah, I know this is going to get difficult. Watch this. One of the overarching principles in our culture is that you get to do whatever you want to do. I do whatever I want to do. And as long as we're not hurting each other, everything is fine. Can I just tell you, there is no place in the word of God or in a relationship with God where that works. Our culture is doing away with absolute truth. It's it's, it's, it's fading away as fast as the water evaporates in the middle of the summer. It's just dissipating absolute truth. There is no absolute truth anymore in American culture. It's gone. Well, you do what you want to do as long as you like it. You're not hurting anybody as you just do whatever you want to do. And then when, if you want to do whatever you want to do, that's fine. Just keep, just as long as you don't mess with anything, it's fine. Just do whatever you want. I do whatever I want. It's all fine. It's all good, except the principle that we find out in Nehemiah is it's not all right. There was a standard that God expected them to live by. Guess what? There's still a standard today that God expects us to live by. And at some point in time, we have to define that. So it's not just what I think is right. It's what's right. It's, it's what God says is right. Because I'll be honest with you, sometimes I don't feel like what's right is actually right anymore. Because, come on, can we just be honest here? Sometimes I don't feel like doing what's right. Don't say amen. Don't leave me, don't leave me up here by myself. Sometimes I just don't feel like doing it. Sometimes it doesn't feel right to me. Sometimes the difficult thing that I need to do, there's no part of it that I want to do. It, it, it doesn't feel like the right thing to do. That's the danger with us telling our kids, do whatever, do what feels, do what, you, follow your feelings, follow, follow your, no, because sometimes the right thing to do doesn't feel good at all. So we have to learn, do, God has called us to do what is right. Verse nine, then I gave orders and they cleansed the chambers and I brought back the vessels of the house of God and the grain offering and the frankincense. It said, I redid what we already did. Church, there has to be a standard. There has to be. We talked about it in the last sermon series about, about our minds and that, and that our emotions trick us a lot of times. And what we feel ends up determining what we do. And it needs to be the exact opposite. I need to, as Dr. Harden told us, I need to compare what I feel with the word of God. I need to compare what I feel with what God has already said. Is what I feel true? Because sometimes what I feel is not true. It may be what I'm feeling, but it may not be right. There has to be a standard we seek. A relationship with God will move us to his standards, even if we don't fully understand them. Now, I need to tell you something. There are some things that God asked me to do that I don't understand. It's called faith. It's called trust. I'm never going to fully understand God's plan for my life. I'm never going to fully understand each step of every day because I don't know every single thing in the universe. 
But here's the confidence I can have. God knows the beginning from the end and everything in between. And he has set the plan in motion. And as long as I follow in him, he, what we say last week, he directs the steps of the righteous. So I can be confident. It's not about what I'm feeling. It's about what God has said is right for me. And I need to say this to you today. God is not kicking the fun out of your life. God is not saying, well, there will be no fun. And, and, and so I'm giving you all these strict standards and I'm going to, and you have to No, he's as our creator, as our creator, he knows the best for us. He knows the perfect setting. He knows the perfect environment, the perfect context for every single one of our lives. And so he says, this is the way I want you to live. This is standard by which I've set in front of you. And if we follow it, he promises us a full life, a meaningful life, a rewarding life. Those are the promises in scripture. He came to give us life and life more abundantly. But that's not us just doing whatever we want. We learned last week, Paul wrote, should we go on sinning because there's a bunch of grace? No, let it, let it not be that way. So all of a sudden we have to say, God, your standard, whether I understand or not, your, perp, your, your, your guardrails of my life, your, the way you asked me to live this thing is for me to live my best life it's not a restrictive thing. It's not a dogmatic thing. It's a loving God saying, listen, trust me on this. The best life you can live is a life submitted to God. If you read through the book of Judges, Israel was in a was in constant chaos. And Judges chapter 17, verse 5 and 6 explain why it was in constant chaos. And the man Micah had a shrine and he made an ephod and household gods and ordained one of his sons who became his priest. Now, I want you to think about this just really short little context here. There's, a, there's this guy who decided to make a whole bunch of idols and he named his son the priest of the house I, of the church. He just started in his house. You know why? He, he was just making up what was right. Making it up. Well, I think I'll just make my own God and I'll make my son the priest of my, my own God and I'll just do whatever I think is right in the moment because here's the defining statement right here. Verse six of chapter 17 of Judges. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And if you read the book of Judges, it was chaos. And what do you see today in our culture? Everyone does what's right in their own eyes. And I can tell you, church, what's happening all over the country, all over the world even, is that we are setting up gods in place of where the one true God was supposed to be. We're doing whatever's right in our own eyes, and that's not going to get us anywhere. The issue is this pattern is continuing God gives us his unmerited grace and favor and mercy through Jesus. We move towards him and then, and then we end up compromising a little bit, compromising a little bit. We say, well, I think this will be fine and I think this will be okay. No, but God says, no, don't do that. Because here's the point. You don't have to repeat the pattern. If Nehemiah chapter 13 shows us that the possibility that after we're shown grace and mercy and toward, turns, toward, turn towards him, that we could then compromise, we already know it's a possibility. 
That doesn't mean we have to repeat it. So here's what I'm going to leave you with. John chapter 14, verse 15. This is Jesus talking about relationship. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. He's not talking about salvation. He's not talking about you'll be saved if you, if you do everything right. No, no, no. He's saying in response to me, in response to the grace I've given you, the sign that you love me is that you'll do what is right. You'll keep my commandments. Now watch the promise he gives when he does this. If you love me, you will keep my commandments and I will ask the father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. So this is the, this is it. This is towards the end of Jesus life. He's getting ready to get arrested and it's, it's all wrapping up really quick. And he says, I'll send you the Holy spirit. That's what he was saying here the helper. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it is neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. He's saying, listen, do what's right. The best life you could live right now. You don't have to compromise. It's not, it's not built in. It doesn't have to happen. We see the pattern that happened over and over and over with the Israelites. And now, now we should see it coming. We should see it coming. And when we, when we feel a little compromise, come on, you know what it feels like when you feel the little, like, oh, I could just give in here a little bit. No, it's like, God, no, I won't do that. I'm not going to keep repeating the pattern. I will not keep repeating the pattern. Come on, stand to your feet. Stand to your feet. I want us to pray that way for a moment here this morning. I want us to pray that way. There's some of you that need to break the pattern. There's some of you that, that there's some of you that maybe just compromised this week and you just said, oh, it's just a little thing. It's just a little thing. Come on, you took so much time to set it up. So much time pouring into the relationship. God spent so much time drawing you to himself. Don't, don't compromise. Don't do it. Some of you have been thinking about it. Some of you have been thinking about, man, this, this, it won't hurt just to do this little thing. It won't hurt just to have, it won't hurt just the one time. Come on, don't compromise. Don't do it. Make up your mind today. You don't have to replace that, that, that worship that, that was meant for God. You don't have to replace it with something else. The fullest life you will ever live is keeping that place just for him. Is not compromising. The fullest life you will ever live is to just give it all, is to let him have it all. The fullest life you will ever live is to obey him and follow in his ways. Come on. Come on, can we confess that this morning? Come on, just take a few moments and confess it to him. That area that you're thinking about compromise, that area that you did compromise, that, 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 that thing that happened so fast that you didn't even realize it was happening, that little thing that replaced the worship.